But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season and its leaves does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Psalms 1 verses 2 and 3. Hello once again, and welcome back to the Streams of Water Bible Study podcast. After about a three-month hiatus, we're glad to be back for another episode. Uh, Andy, you doing okay? I'm not sure we still remember how to do this. Yeah, we're going to be a little bit rusty here. Uh, I am very happy that we're we're back. We're making another podcast. It's been a little while. Um, just in time for, for the holidays, this is the Christmas gift that our listeners uh, didn't ask for and didn't know they needed, but uh, here we are. Yeah, maybe maybe they didn't even want it. But yet... <laughs> maybe, <laughs> but we're giving it well, to them anyway. So it's been about three months uh, since the last time that we recorded an episode. Uh, what have you been up to, Andy, the last three months? Update us just a little bit. Yeah, things uh, things have been good. Um uh, just continuing uh, the work here at uh, Rossville Church of Christ, and things are going uh, really well. Got a lot of exciting things uh, going on um, in Bible studies, and um, I'm very excited about starting the new year, new plans for uh, being more focused, even more on making disciples and, and uh, getting the whole congregation involved in that. So uh, things are going well. Awesome. What about you? Yeah, I'm glad to hear it. Uh, well, yeah, things are things are still going. Of course, we both just wrapped up the semester with school, so that's going to give a little bit more free time over the next month or so, uh, which I think I'm going to need because uh, <laughs> we're expecting a little girl to be born around December 29th, uh, me and my wife are. Uh, so we're excited about that, a little anxious about that, but uh, – uh, something we're definitely looking forward to. I don't know, depending on when we do our next episode, there might be not only a dog barking in the background, but a baby crying. So we'll just, you know, we'll just have to work through that. That's right. Due to uh, baby Alverson coming soon, we, we make no promises about, uh, you know, when our, uh, how long our next hiatus is going to be, but we will, we're going to try to, to, to make some more uh, podcasts, but uh, excited for you about that and for Leslie and, I know that's a that's a very exciting time, but I'm sure a little little anxiety with that as well. Yeah, definitely. Just not not sure what to expect right now, but um, I it, I think it'll it's it's all it's all going to be good. I mean, it's really um, just hard for me to imagine. You know, I lived in a dorm with you, you know, and now you're going to be a father. I mean, that's just kind of kind of mind blowing. But yeah, that's a scary thought, isn't it? That's a really scary <laughs> thought. <laughs> What are we talking about great. today, Andy? <laughs> Moving on. Yeah. 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 We are we are in the letter of Jude. Uh, so obviously, like we said, it's been been a little while. Our last episode, if you want to go back and listen to that, we covered the first half of uh, this book. And we talked about how it's a short letter, one that's sometimes overlooked, I think, due to its brevity, but also due to some of the strange things in it some of the strange references in it um maybe a little bit confusing for some people maybe not talked about as much but we talked about how important some of the the 
um, themes and ideas are uh, here in God's word and in the section of God's word. And uh, we talked about uh, the danger of false teachers. We talked about uh, the mercy of Christ. Um, and we talked about um, the urgency that Jude uh, has in, in writing this letter as he's trying to combat some false teachers. So as we uh, get into our text today, that we're going to talk about uh, we're going to see some of those same themes come up and uh, uh, dive into it a little bit more. Yeah, really, the uh, you know the main idea that seems the thesis of the book goes back to uh, verse number three, where he's saying he found it necessary to write to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So, yeah, like you said, we spent a lot of time talking about these false teachers who were, uh, it seems, were entering into this Christian community, Jude talks a lot about their character, uh, really not so much their teaching, but who they are as people, their character, their personality, a sinful character, that is. And uh, yeah, so we're going to continue some of those main themes as we uh, jump into uh, verse number 14. Um, so are we are we ready to do that? Let's do it. All right. All right. Let's do it. Uh Jude verse number 14 and uh, you just want to read the rest of the rest of the book and then we can just walk through it let's do it okay uh, well if you want to read down to let's see around what would it be around 20 or so and then yep. I, I can read the rest sounds good all right Jude 14 it was also about these that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied saying behold the Lord comes with ten ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgments on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. All right, good reading there. Uh, going back to verse number 14, uh, we find a quotation from the book of Enoch. So maybe we need to spend just a little bit of time, Andy, talking about the book of Enoch talking about how we should view this. I think this has caused problems for some Christians in the past where uh, either people use this to say Enoch should be in the canon of scripture and it's been left out of the canon of scripture or that people have used this quotation to say that the book of Jude shouldn't be in the canon of scripture. So there's a, a couple of extremes there uh, using the book of Enoch. So um how have you thought about that uh, in a helpful way that would, um, you know, promote what Jude is saying here is true, 
uh, but also not saying we should accept any other books into the biblical canon. Yeah, I have thought about it. And actually, this is something that I wrestled with and, and struggled with when I was a teenager. I mean, I remember reading um, Jude. Uh, I don't know how old it was, probably 15 or 16 or something like that. And I remember, uh, you know, seeing this quotation and remember, you know, not having not having really read that before, heard of that before, did a little digging. And that was really concerning to me to 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 see that, OK, th- a biblical writer is quoting this other book um, and it seems to seems to be be using this quotation that is from uh, a book that is not in the canon of scripture that doesn't seem to be inspired. So that 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 caused some questions for me. I remember asking our youth minister at the time uh, about that. And he, he gave a really helpful answer and I've talked to others about that. They've done some my own study. The way I kind of think about it is I think there's a couple of things that we can when think about here one um the the inspired writers of scripture they have the prerogative to quote things that are non-inspired in inspired ways um and we know that the apostle paul for instance he quotes uh poetry that is obviously not inspired that's even um uh, just from the kind of the pagan secular culture of the day but he uses it in a way that is inspired and for uh, the gospel uh, message. Other uh, writers quote um, from non-inspired uh, sources. Another possible way about uh, thinking about this is that, and I think this is what my youth minister had said, and I think this could be a helpful way to, to understand this, is that it's possible that this is a legitimate, tra- this is a legitimate tradition of the prophecy of Enoch, and Enoch, the the character, the historical figure that we read about in the Bible, he really did say these words. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the book of First Enoch um, is totally reliable. But it may include a reliable saying from the prophet uh, Enoch that uh, Jude is now picking up on. So those are maybe some some ways to kind of uh, help us understand that that. It's it's appropriate. It's it's not. Um, it shouldn't be shocking to us that you know a, a biblical writer is using something outside of the Bible for his uh, purpose. Is there anything um, that I left out there, Tyler, or anything you'd like to add on that? Yeah, no, I, I think those are a couple of helpful views. Uh, the second one that you mentioned that you received from your youth minister, I was doing a little bit of reading last night, and uh, that view actually goes back to. Augustine, that first Enoch does have uh, some reliable parts, not inspired as a whole, but perhaps some parts being inspired. Is is that the way that that you would? Yes. Say that? Yeah. Yeah. That goes back to Augustine. So yeah, that's a that's a view that's been around a really long time. But I think I would favor the first one that that you suggested is that here we have an inspired writer, Jude, uh, the brother of James and servant of God and of Jesus Christ, according to the first verse who is quoting something that's not inspired, but yet quoting it in an inspired way, it would kind of be like, and this isn't a one-to-one parallel, of course, because you and I, Andy, wouldn't be inspired. But whenever we stand up to preach on Sundays, if I am speaking and reading from the Word of God, of course, we're looking at inspired material. But I, I know I do this, Andy, I know you do too. You could pull from somebody like Will, a quote from William Shakespeare, or George Washington, or Abraham Lincoln, or somebody else throughout history, and we're not 
elevating them to the level of scripture and saying, oh, what, what Abraham Lincoln said here is inspired, just like the text of scripture is, but instead, hey, maybe that quote is really well known to the congregation. This person is really well known to the congregation. So I'm going to use this to illustrate uh, the point that I'm making. In the first century, the book of First Enoch would have been very well known uh, by the church, uh, the not only Jews, but also the first century church. Uh, it seems that Peter in some of his writings alludes to it in first Peter chapter three or in second Peter chapter two. Uh, so yeah, this quotation is not saying that the book of Enoch belongs in scripture and it should be present in scripture. And it's one of these books that have been left out as some suggest, uh, but this is Jude to me, the way that I would look at this, this is Jude using an illustration that his audience would have been very familiar with that contains truth that uh, conveys what something that God is going to do in the future. Uh, so uh, what else do you think about that, Andy? Any other thought be before we look at the quote specifically, any thoughts on just a, a general view there, uh, this use of first Enoch? I think what you said is a, um, is a good way to sum it up. I think just as a general idea you know it's okay to have you know questions like this but sometimes you know we don't we don't need to uh you know panic or freak out when there's something maybe that we don't understand or that you know someone is using this who's skeptical and saying well you know they're trying to undermine the authority of the scripture or the canon um you know a lot of times there's some pretty simple explanations like we've given here that will help us understand what's going on in a little bit better way. And so hopefully that's helpful uh, to people because that is a question that comes up a lot when people are reading this book and is something that people wonder about. Yeah, definitely. Um, Enoch was a character that was very intriguing to the Jews. It seems uh, going back to Genesis chapter five, you know, the only thing that's mentioned about him basically is he was walked with, he walked with God and then, God took him. And so that leaves it kind of open-ended, you know, a, a very open-ended character. You also find that with Elijah. Uh, we could spend time talking about that with John the Baptist, but I think that's why those books would come into circulation or, or why they would be written down in the name of Enoch, uh, you know, just a, maybe a couple hundred years before Jesus came to earth is because this is a, you know, a character that we don't have a lot of information about, obviously a faithful character, one of the two individuals who it seems didn't die, didn't experience physical death. Um, so uh, just, a, you know, just, a, I guess, an interesting side note. So let's let's talk about this specific prophecy uh, that is quoted here in verse 14 and also verse 15. Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all to convict the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This really fits well into the context that we've been talking about. Wouldn't you say about false teachers and who they are? We've been talking about their character. We've been talking about the kind of people who they are. And here we have an announcement of judgment that one day they're, they're going to be judge they're going to be convicted for these ungodly things that they have done 
Yeah, and remember what we talked about last time at the beginning of the of the letter. Jude emphasizes the that that theme of judgment. He talks about how Jesus saved the people out of Egypt, but afterward destroyed those who did not believe. He talks about the angels that did not stay within their own position of authority. They're facing darkness until the judgment of that great day. He talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, how they face uh, judgment, and then. The text right before what we just read in verse 14 and following, uh, he gives those metaphors that we talked about before about the false teachers, how they are like hidden reefs that destroy. They are fruitless trees, twice dead and uprooted, waterless clouds. Basically, uh, they're useless. They're unprofitable. They're destructive. They're dangerous. And then he's using this quotation from Enoch to highlight that point. Um, about judgment, about, um, well, really the word that stands out to me, and I don't know how, how it couldn't stand out uh, to anyone uh, who's reading that, is ungodly. Ungodliness is uh, probably mentioned four or five times there in a span of uh, four or five verses. Um, uh, the, you know, Enoch and Jude, in quoting Enoch, really wants to emphasize that uh, these, these people, these false teachers, they're displaying an ungodliness that is offensive, that is wrong, that's destructive, and God is going to bring uh, judgment on, on them. So I think the, the point of this quotation is further warning, uh, further, a further call for the, the Christians, the church, to be alert, to be aware of what's going on, and to stay away from these uh, kinds of teachers. That's right, because if they were to sell into and buy into uh, what these false teachers are propagating and were to become like them, then this judgment would be extended to them as well. So this is certainly uh, something that he's wanting them to stand up against, that the Lord is going to judge these people for their ungodliness. So as you said, Andy, you be alert, you be on guard, you pay attention. Don't allow them to influence you so that you won't have to experience this judgment. As we're going to uh, talk about a little bit later, we're uh, in just a few minutes, their responsibility is not going to be to uh, experience this judgment and join the false teachers, but instead attempt to save people from that judgment. And uh, as I you know, we'll talk about that in uh, just a few minutes. Um, but, you know, it ends, uh, verse 16, this, this section uh, about these false teachers. This is uh, another description that we have of them in verse 16, that they're grumblers, malcontents, they're complaining, following their sinful desires, loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Uh, just a further description of, of who these people are and the reason that the judgment is going to come upon them. Yeah, and I think I think this is a point we've talked about before, but it's important to reemphasize and reiterate here is that, you know, these false teachers are not only known by their false doctrine and by, by them teaching wrong things, but by the way that they live and by their character that's re- reflected in their, their hearts and their actions. And that's seen in grumbling, that's seen in complaining, that's seen in pursuing sinful passions and desires, that's seen in boasting. Uh, and that, that's seen in, you know, manipulating and showing favoritism to gain advantage and to gain, gain influence. And so this is, you know, this list comes, you know, as another warning to say, watch out for this behavior, because a lot of a lot of times this behavior is connected with this false teaching that they're that they're prop, propagating. 
we emphasized, as as you said, we, we emphasized this last time, but since it's been three months, hey, maybe we should, em, you know, emphasize this again, um, that, yeah, that if we, if you would ask somebody in the church today, please describe to me a false teacher. How would you describe a false teacher? I, I imagine that we would focus on their teaching. You know, this person uh, denies the deity of Jesus or this person says that baptism is not essential to salvation is one that I imagine would be put out there. When Jude describes these false teachers, it's not that their false teaching is unimportant, uh, but what he emphasizes and what's oftentimes emphasized throughout the New Testament is their their character, their personality, the kind of people who they are. And so I think we need to be careful about using that term false teacher because it's not just associated with somebody false teaching, maybe in a sincere way, maybe they're just messing up and they're, they're not saying things that are true. There's a difference between somebody like that, which is, which is not good by any means, but there's a, a difference between someone who is sincere in teaching incorrectly versus someone who is doing this intentionally, someone who is trying to deceive, someone who has a sinful character, a grumbler, a malcontent following their own sinful desires and using that to try to draw these Christians away. So maybe we could just do a better job at that. So we, we so often want to use the term false teacher so flippantly. We attach it to people so quickly. And uh, it's not just about their teaching and examination of their teaching, but an examination of their lives. Yeah, there's a difference between the kind of people that are talked about here, that Jude's discussing here, and there's a difference between those kinds of people and people like Apollos in Acts, who had some misinformation. He he needed to be taught the way more accurately, but they did not label him as a false teacher. I think we may have mentioned that uh, last time as well. So I think that's, a, that's an important and helpful distinction. And I think also the implication is here, if you have a wrong view of God, theologically, doctrin- doctrinally, that ultimately leads ultimately leads to an ungodly character because you are, if you're misaligned on who God is, what he says, what he's, what he's revealed himself to be. And you're intentionally rejecting that for your own purposes. No wonder you're going to have an ungodly character because you don't have a right view of God centering you and uh, guiding you and uh, transforming you. As was said in a, class that we dearly loved at Fried Hardman. Nothing determines who you are so much as your view of God. Um, so I, I was waiting for you to quote that. I really was. I, I thought about it. Quote I that thought so about often. It. That's right. That's one of our favorite quotes. Uh, one, one that we, uh, we think about a lot. Uh, I actually was mentioning that to someone uh, the other day. Um, I think it's, it's, it rings so true though. Um, nothing affects who you are so much as your view of God. And I think we can apply that uh, to what's being said here in this passage, especially with that emphasis on the ungodliness, the ungodliness, the ungodliness that's reiterated over and over uh, in this short passage. Thank you, Kirk brothers. Uh, <laughs> but continuing on, you know, verse verse 17, we're going to kind of transition just a little bit away from a description of the false teachers to what the church should do in response to these situations that arise. So, Uh, Anything else we need to firm up down to 16? Uh, No, I don't think so. I think, like you were saying, I think in 17, there's a clear transition as as they're 
you know, you know, as Jude's talking about these false teachers, the warnings that they need to be aware of, you know, the readers, you know, if, if that was, if it was just left at that and he was just telling them about this threat of judgment, this threat of the false teachers, that'd be a pretty bad place to be. What, where do we go from here? What do we do now? But he doesn't leave them there. Verse 17, we see that transition, but you, okay, this is what these people are like over here. This is, this is the character. This is the, the destruction of these false teachers, but you, you live in a different way and you remember uh, what you've been told and what uh, you are to expect. And so I think, like you said, there's a clear uh, transition for the church to be built up. And here's some, here's some proactive things that you can do as you're trying to face this really difficult situation. I love how the scriptures don't just describe problems but they also give solutions you know, right right alongside of those problems. I think sometimes uh, when we think about different things in our lives, we can do a really good job at articulating what's wrong, articulating the problem, but then maybe we don't consider solutions. We don't consider what we need to do in order to remedy that problem. The scriptures don't do that. Of course, it, the scriptures are happy to describe to us the issue that's at hand, and Jude is happy to do that in this passage. But he also wants to say here, as you said, here's some things that you can do to make sure that you are not swayed by these false teachers. Some things that you need to put in place. So the first one, verse 17, you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the specific prediction that he quotes, verse 18. In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. There's that word again uh, that you mentioned, Andy, ungodly, shows up there in verse number 18. Uh, but this seemed to be the, the testimony of not just one of the apostles, but all of the apostles, a warning that they gave, as it seems maybe they were dying out and uh, the church was going to be continuing without the apostles being there in place. He says, you need to remember that they're going to come, these scoffers, and they're going to follow their ungodly passions. This is actually very similar to what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 3, where he says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Uh, so there's a lot of people who we've emphasized the similarities between Peter and Jude, Second Peter and Jude. And there are a lot of people who debate about which one came first? Did Jude come first or did Second Peter come first? Uh, I'm not, you know, I don't necessarily want to weigh in on that debate, but it seems here that Jude is at least aware of what Peter was preaching alongside of the other apostles as recorded in Second Peter 3 and verse number 3. Uh, so, uh, Andy, what are, your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think as we're thinking about what the church can do as they're facing this this false teaching, these dangerous people that are coming in. I think the first thing that he says that it's important to do is remember that this is expected. Uh, that's that's really the the first thing that they should be aware of because if if they if they had this thinking, well, this just just came out of nowhere. Uh, this is surprising God. This is surprising uh, the apostles. Then that would be really 
damaging to the faith that'd be potentially discouraging especially in the early church as this movement of Christ followers is 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 growing and growing um, but Jude is reminding them this is this has been predicted all along this is to be expected um, this is this is similar to things that 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 Jesus said that the apostles said um, we are we are never told that we're never going to face opposition we're never told that we're never going to face false teaching we're never told that we're not going to face suffering and so it's important to remember okay this is what was predicted so be ready uh, don't be caught off guard uh, by this and i think that's a really significant uh, point when things uh, don't go like we want them to or we're facing some really difficult things uh, such as they were facing in the first century we've got to remember uh, jesus and his inspired apostles the writers that we have they told us to expect these things. And so that that should help us to be alert, aware, ready for for this false teaching and these false teachers, uh, because we've been promised that. Yeah, I think that's really helpful, maybe sometimes because of the, the culture and the time that we live within as Christianity becomes increasingly more unpopular, we when we experience difficulty or pushback or what we might be able to call persecution, even though I'm not so sure it's close to that term yet, uh, we kind of throw up our hands and we're surprised whenever those things happen to us. And isn't it interesting that the scriptures told us to expect it? it it's almost as if we have missed those different passages like Second Timothy 3 and verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted or uh, what Peter says in his first letter, how we shouldn't be surprised when those fiery trials come upon us as though some strange thing is happening to us, or what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, blessed are you when you're persecuted. Your reward is great in heaven, and remember that other people went through this before you. And so, uh, or, you know, John chapter 15, the world's going to hate you because the world hated me first. There are all of these predictions that we have uh, throughout the scriptures that tell us what to expect. I think another maybe more more broad way, uh, more broad application that we can draw out of verses 17 and 18 is when we experience false teaching, when we experience false teachers, what do we do? We go back to the testimony, to the teaching, to the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. That That has to be our foundation. That has to be what we go back to. That has to be what we return to uh, when we experience teaching that's false. Maybe, you know, we made this distinction between false teachers and false teaching, regardless of which one we're experiencing. We need to go back and see what did the apostles say about this? What did Jesus teach through the apostles about this specific topic? And so it's not culture that determines what we believe. It's not popularity that determines what we believe. It's not majority that determines what we believe. We have to go back to what the apostles said, what the apostles taught, what they predicted. Yeah, so see your world and what's happening in your world through the eyes of the scriptures and what, what the inspired apostles have written, what's been preserved for us. And that, that helps me to understand what's going on. I might want to respond in fear or anxiety or panic but he's he's saying remember this this is this is was predicted this is what 
Um, God's uh, representatives, his messengers have, have told you was going to happen. And I like how Jude inserts that little word there, beloved, in verse 17. He's reminding, okay, this is difficult. This is, this is, this is suffering. There's scoffers coming. But remember also that you are beloved. And I'm telling you this because you are beloved. And this is this is important for us to remember. Some, like you were saying, Tyler, sometimes we 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 get great comfort from the promises of God. We sing about standing on the promises, and we should do that. That that is so vital for our Christian life. But we also have to stand on the promises of the things in the scriptures that the apostles have predicted and promised, and Jesus has predicted and promised that are difficult but we also know that they've promised uh joy through that they've promised triumph through that they've promised god's presence through that and so all these things need to be remembered as as we as we think about these things and as we potentially face those things in our lives and in our church life definitely uh, so in continue seems to describe those uh, scoffers in verse 18 and verse number 19 that they're going to cause divisions they're going to be worldly people which stands in contrast with the spiritual perspective andy that you were calling us to to view the world through the eyes of the lens of the scriptures these people are worldly uh, and it says they're devoid of the spirit which those three descriptors as we continue in verse 21 and uh, verse 20 and 21 those descriptors in verse 19 are going to be so different from who we're supposed to be. Now, these people cause divisions. We're supposed to build ourselves up in the most holy faith. Don't be divided, but instead together we're, we're being built up in the faith. And then, you know, they're devoid of the spirit, but we are to pray in the spirit. They're worldly people, but we are to keep ourselves in the love of God, not in the world but in the love that God has for us as we wait for the day when Jesus is going to return. Uh, but uh, verse 19, I think, reveals, you know, again, Jude goes back to their character, goes back to their personality, and goes back to the results of what they're going to do, that these are people who are going to cause divisions in the body. They're worldly. They're devoid of the Spirit. But verse 20, but you, in contrast, here's what you're supposed to do, beloved. Uh, the people who I love. Here's here's what I expect from you. Yeah, it's no surprise that these people are, un, are ungodly because they're devoid of the Spirit of God. They don't have God's own Spirit dwelling uh, within them. We can't be godly apart from His Spirit uh, bearing that fruit of, of godly character uh, within us. And I like what you said about that stark contrast because I think it's so Clearly what, what Jude intends for us to see here is in verse 19, here's, here's the people uh, that are, are causing divisions, that are worldly, they're driven by worldly passions, as we've already seen, ungodly uh, passions and, and sinfulness. They're, they're driven by a different motivation, by a different purpose, by a different guiding force. They're devoid of the Spirit. But then he, he throws in that term again that we saw in verse 17, but you beloved remember he he says beloved in verse 17 also he says beloved in verse 20 i think that's important as well and he says building yourselves up in their most holy faith these people that are false teachers that are ungodly you you can recognize them because they're not their purpose is not to build up the body and build up the faith 
their purpose is to tear down. Their purpose is to destroy. Their purpose is to gain for themselves. But you, you have to, you have to counteract that by building people up in the most holy faith. And that term, most holy faith there, that should bring us back and remind us of what started this, this letter and what we focused in on last episode uh, so much about how Jude is contending for the faith for that was once for all delivered. Verse three, um, he, he says, you know, not only should we contend for the faith, but we got to build ourselves up in that faith. Uh, keep keep working out uh, what that faith looks like, encouraging each other in the faith, defending it, uh, promoting it, proclaiming it, encouraging one another in it. And that's what's going to help build up the body. And then praying in the spirit rather than being devoid of the spirit. We are totally reliant on the spirit and, and especially in prayer, trusting in him, praying according to his will, praying by his power, knowing that the spirit is interceding for us. This total reliance on God and a humility before him that is, in, that is, again, in stark contrast to these worldly people and false teachers. Yeah, and I, that idea of praying in the Holy Spirit, I've heard that before in terms of you know, charismatic uh, prayers where you're praying in tongues. I don't think that's what Jude is talking about here. Uh, Andy, if, if, if you think that's what he's talking about, then I'd, I'd love for you to do that right now. That'd be really interesting to hear. <laughs> no, I do uh, not. But, um, yeah, yeah, I don't think you think that either. Uh, but, yeah, so this is, a, this is a big contrast to say, hey, don't, don't cause divisions like these people. Instead, be built up in the faith, which we're contending for, and pray in the Holy Spirit. And then verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. The first few times I came across that and really thought about that, um, and maybe this is the way that some other people think about it too, is that if I don't live a holy life, if I'm not who God wants me to be, then God's not going to love me anymore, that I have to keep myself in the love of God. And if I step outside of that, then God's not going to love me anymore. I don't think that's what Judas suggesting here. I think this is talking about uh, salvation. I think, you know, God, of course, offers us this great love and we are to live within that love. It's not saying if I were to choose to walk away from God, then God's not going to love me anymore. I think here he's talking about the love of God to suggest everything that comes along with the love of God in terms of forgiveness, in terms of mercy, in terms of grace. I can walk away from that. God's still going to love me. But if I choose to walk away from him, I'm not going to be able to receive his grace and mercy and forgiveness. If I turn my back on him, if I fall away from him, if I were to side with the false teachers who Jude is talking about throughout this book, instead, I need to stand with both of my feet planted in the love that God has for me, which is, I think, really motivational and really transformational, where uh, it's not just saying, you know, keep yourselves in this very cold commitment that you have to God where there's not really a lot of feeling, but you're just checking things off of a list. No, he's saying keep yourself in this relationship, just like I'm continuing to work on my relationship with my wife or family or friends. He says, continue to live in this great love that God has for you, which we can't, we can't even understand how great God's love is. And so I've, I've, I've always thought that the wording of that 
has always intrigued me. It was kind of puzzling when you look at some scriptures that say, you know, you can't be separated from the love of God. And then here it says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Uh, but I think this has to do uh, with uh, salvation uh, purposes. Um, what would you suggest about that, Andy? Yeah, I think a lot, a lot of what you said was really, really summed that up very well. It is a powerful phrase and it makes me think of, you know, this, this idea of what we I've already mentioned about, you know, he mentioned, he calls him beloved several times. He's, he's showing how important it is to see ourselves as loved, to see ourselves as in the love of God. And I think it's important to point out what, what you said earlier about this is not, I've got to, I've got to earn God's love in some way because we know that while we were ungodly, while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, God showed his great love for us and that he sent his son to die for us. Um, he didn't do, he didn't love us because we were so worthy of it. He didn't um, love us because we were, we had earned that love or we were very lovable. In fact, he, he loved us when we were at our most unlovable. And so this keep yourselves in the love of God is not, I've got to do so much to make God love me or to make myself lovable. I like the idea of what you said of planting your feet in the, the established love that God already has for us. And this is, this is so important is to root ourselves in that love, to be changed by that love, to live out the reality of that love. And when I, when I am changed by that love, when I'm living in it, when I'm reminding myself of it, when I'm keeping myself in that, I'm no longer going to live for my own worldly passions like these false teachers. I'm no longer going to live for my own selfish desires. I'm going to live uh, to please God because of the great love that he has for me and the love that that creates in me toward him. And so it's this, like you said, it's this profound relationship that shapes who we are. And I think Jude is telling us, what it looks like to keep ourselves in the love of God. How do you keep yourself in the love of God? Well, you build yourselves up in the most holy faith with the community of believers. You remind ourselves that we belong to this community of love. We have this fellowship with God and one another built on the, the faith, built on the truth of the gospel. And we keep ourselves in the love of God by praying in the Holy Spirit, by relying on him, by trusting in him. And as you were saying earlier, this is not charismatic praying but i think this is a praying that's in line with the will and with the purpose of the holy spirit it reminds me of galatians you know keep in step with the spirit i think that's the kind of idea here is that you're praying uh, alongside him you're praying trusting in him and his power that's one of the ways that you keep yourselves in the love of god and then I think the final way is waiting for the mercy of our lord jesus christ that leads to eternal life so having our eyes set on the mercy that's going to come, the salvation that's going to come, the eternal life that's going to come when Jesus returns. All of these things help to remind us of the love of God, to root us in the love of God, and to help us keep ourselves in the love of God. Yeah, all of those uh, participles that talk to us about how to fulfill the command, uh, that's certainly what the language is uh, pointing us towards and I, I love that last one in verse 21, that we're waiting for the mercy of Jesus that leads to eternal life. It's that already, but not yet kind of 
view kind of mentality that have we do we already have Jesus's mercy? Do we already have eternal life secured? Well, sure, we we have that as Christians, but we don't have that in its fullness yet. And so waiting for that, longing for that, yearning for that, praying the prayer of the Apostle John at the book of Revelation, Lord, come quickly, uh, because this is something that we want to experience. This is where we want to be, Jesus to come, to extend his mercy, to give to us eternal life, uh, to rescue us from the brokenness and the sinfulness and the pain of this world. Uh, that's what we're ultimately setting our eyes on. And so when we think about how we should respond to these false teachers or how we should respond to different difficulties that might arise, there are certainly things that we need to do in the present, but we're also locking our eyes on something greater, something better. We're, we're waiting for Jesus to come back, uh, expecting that uh, at any moment, something that we're looking forward to. And then as you transition into 22 and 23, it's not just about what we do within the Christian community, but it's also how we reach out to other people, isn't it? That's right. And I think, I think that, there's such a clear connection between 21 and 22, as you're pointing out, that having our eyes set on that mercy and recognizing that we are totally dependent on that mercy and that we need it right now and we need it in the future when Jesus is going to come back. And that's what our hope is in, in that mercy. That that makes me more merciful toward other people. That that makes me, uh, that flows, that mercy flows out of my my heart and my life and the way that I interact with others. And uh, that, that, that scene in verse 22, have mercy on those uh, who doubt. Um, I think, I, I don't know how you, you view this Tyler. I think that can, that can be on those who maybe are outside the faith, who are, who are doubting, who are, who are, you know, maybe uh, trying to come to faith and struggling with that. I also think this can refer to those who maybe are doubting and maybe struggling with the false teachers, they wouldn't be in the false teacher category, but maybe they're, maybe they're a weak Christian, an immature Christian, they're struggling. And, you know, I think Jude is saying, treat these false teachers very seriously, separate yourselves from them. But I think he's also maybe, maybe reminding them, there are some that are, that are struggling with this, that are doubting that you need to have mercy on and be patient with them and try to help them. And that's, that's a, again, that's a different thing than these people who are intentionally trying to, to teach falsely. What's your perspective on that? Yeah, I, I think um, you're absolutely right on that. I'm not, I think it could refer to either one. As I was reading, I mentioned I was reading through a commentary uh, by Douglas Moo and he suggested that, those who are doubting here are those within the Christian community who maybe have started to flirt a little bit with this false teaching. Like you said, a weak Christian, maybe a babe in Christ who is starting to be swayed a little bit by this false, it, false teaching. It'd be so easy to just push them out. You know, if, if, if you're even going to consider this, then this is a deal breaker. You know, we're, we're going to push you out. We're going to uh, neglect you. Uh, we're going to kick you out on the street. But the, the proper response, of course, that Jude gives is that of mercy. Uh, mercy is seeing somebody in need 
recognizing that need, having compassion on them so that I reach out and meet the need that this person has. And so here's somebody who's struggling. Maybe they've gotten caught up in this false teaching and they're starting to be swayed instead of pushing them out, instead of meeting that with anger and wrath. Instead, we see and we recognize the need that that person has and we reach out in compassion in order to bring that person back. So that's the way that I've, I've thought about it. I, I think it could too be referring to those false teachers that perhaps there's uh, you know mercy and compassion there as well. Um, especially you were mentioning a little bit about you know a, a textual variant that's here and how different translations read differently. But yeah, I, I think if, if I had to come down on one, I would say that these are those who are have started to flirt a little bit with the false teaching and were to meet those people with mercy. I think that's what I would say too. I think that would, that would be the make the most sense uh, in, in the context to me, even though I think this could have broader applications as we're, we're thinking about the principle that's behind this, but it, it also makes me think of what you were talking about earlier about not being so quick to label people as false teachers. I think there's a similar principle here of, you know, especially I think we should especially be mindful and sensitive to this with uh, newer Christians. Um, don't don't discount them or write them off or look down on them um, if they don't have every single doctrine right yet or if they're struggling with certain things or maybe they're experiencing doubts because we all go through that. Right. We all are, are working through uh you know, how to live out this, this life as, as a disciple. And, and we all want patience. We all want mercy. And so I think it's really important that, you know, it can be easy to get in this mindset of, well, as soon as there's any disagreement, let's, let's push that away. Let's uh, get back away from it. But the desire should be, I want to show mercy on that person. And I want to build that person up in the most holy faith and, and root them even more in the truth of God and the love of God, as I want that for myself also. We want mercy extended to us, but sometimes we're kind of greedy when it comes to extending it to others. Uh, so I think, I think that point is, is really well made. When you look at a new convert, someone who is stepping into uh, the church and doesn't have a background in the church, how should we respond to that? Well, here's somebody who we're, we're, we're working to help them, to help them grow in their faith. I, I was listening, and this is, uh, it was a denominational preacher just came across one of his uh, videos on social media. And he was talking about how people in his congregation were complaining about people outside of the church building who would smoke, who would go out and smoke and then come back in. And his response, I thought, was, was really good. I think it kind of speaks to what the, the point we're making here. He said, well, these people three months ago were smoking marijuana out on the streets. And now they're at church, not smoking marijuana anymore, but smoking cigarettes. They might not be exactly where they need to be, but can you see the growth? And can we be happy with that? Can we show uh, mercy as they're continuing to grow? And so, you know, we, that's a, of course, that's not a, you know, I guess a doctrinal matter as we would typically think about it. But I think that does a good job of, of illustrating maybe the point that we're making here is if we can see people on this, this uh, spectrum of growth, if they're taking steps forward towards Jesus and making improvements, let's continue to show mercy, helping them to continue to take steps 
afford. And if if we don't show mercy, then the opportunity to help is really going to be taken away. Yeah, we, we can't expect people to be at the maturity level that we are or the maturity level of someone who has grown up in the faith their whole whole entire life. And so we've got to be aware of that and, and work with people and, and help build them up. And, you know, I think in that way we can demonstrate the love of God that, you know, accepts us and loves us even while we are still sinners, but then patiently moves us along toward uh, what what is best for us. And that's really the desire that we should all have for, for one another is that we move more and more toward the will of God because that is what's most loving. That is what is what is best for us, but we should do that with patience and mercy. Definitely. In verse 23, I think it ramps it up just a little bit. You know, we, we have mercy on those who doubt in verse 22 and those who might be struggling, kind of being swayed by this false teaching. But in verse 23, it says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. It seems that we're ramping up just a little bit to go from those who are doubting, maybe being swayed by this false teaching, to those who have fully given into it. At least that's the way that I read it, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, Andy. But it seems that these people have fully bought into this false teaching, and they're going to experience that judgment that we talked about just a few verses ago. The quotation from the book of Enoch, how the Lord's going to come and execute judgment on them for the things that they have done, the ungodliness that they have involved themselves in. He says, that's where they are. If they continue down this path, they're going to be in the fires of hell for all of eternity. So what we need to do is to attempt to save them, to deliver them from that by snatching them out of the fire. If they continue down this path, they're going to find themselves in the everlasting fire. And so what I'm going to do, I'm going to put all of my effort into trying to save and deliver this person by snatching them out of that. Uh, so is, is that the way that you would view that or, or would you add anything to that? Yeah, I think this is a very vivid image and picture here of, you know, there's an urgency in snatching them out of the fire. And I mean, I kind of have the, the vision. I think there is that progression that you're talking about there. I, I have the vision of like, th- these are people that have given themselves over to this false teaching, but maybe they've, they've just, you know, they've gone beyond the flirting stage as, as we talked about, and they're, they're in it, but there's, I think Jude, you know, still has this to me, it's, you know, they're, they're kind of still on the edge of the fire where they, they can be snatched out. You know, they've, they've given themselves over it. They're in danger. They are headed to destruction as you were talking about eternal destruction. And, there, there's got to be this, this sense of immediacy and urgency. Snatch them out. Bring them out because they are, they are in a place where they do not need to be and they are in grave, grave uh, danger. And I think this is, this is a, again, this is a really interesting picture and uh, progression here. I think this um, should, should help us think through as we're trying to reach out to other people. Okay, there's some people that we need to be really patient with and really understanding and, and merciful toward and mercy looks like patience in some, some cases, but for others, mercy looks like being really stern, snatching out. That's not a, that's not a gentle action there. That, that, that imagery there is, is something that is, is, is almost violent. You know, you're snatching someone out of that 
fire because it's 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 gone it's gone way too far at that point. And so living a life of that mercy is going to look different in different situations based on where people are. But just as Jude at the beginning of the letter wanted to write about, you know, our common salvation, he said, you know, I, I knew I needed to write to you about continuing for the faith and how important that was because this is such a, a pressing, pressing matter. And that is not opposite of mercy. That is not contradictory to love. That is actually the loving response in cases where people uh, are in the fire. I love how you mentioned that this is something that is, you know, it's, it, it's not gentle. It, when you think about snatching somebody out of the fire, if you have a kid who's about to walk into uh, a fire pit or something like that, you know, you're going to, you're going to grab them and you're going to pull them back as hard as you can, as fast as you can so that they don't get into that fire. And I, that's a great picture to have as we read this passage that there is a sense of urgency because we want to reach these people and snatch them and pull them back before it's too late. And there's going to be a time when we're not going to be able to do that, when we're not going to have the opportunity to snatch them out of the fire, either because uh, eternity is set in, or maybe they've reached that point where their hearts have become so hard that it's not that they can't come back, but it's that they won't. Uh, so yeah, whenever we see people venturing into it, pulling them back, snatching them back uh, so that uh, they won't experience it, doing that before it's too late. How could we not have a sense of urgency about that? And then at the end of 23, do you you have something you want to add? Oh, yeah, just just building off what you were saying, I was just going to say, and I think what that sometimes looks like for us in practicality is the way that we handle that conversation might be different. I think with someone who is, like we were talking about earlier, like maybe a a new Christian struggling with some things, the the tone may be different. The the words that we use may be different. Again, all based on the same truth. But someone who has who is in the fire, we've got to be totally clear. Uh, maybe even harsh. Maybe I mean all this is out of love, but we've got to clearly lay out the danger for them. And I think that is what snatching someone out of the fire might look like in that situation. Yeah, definitely. And as, as you said, it's all dependent on where, where the person is. Uh, But you certainly want to be clear. It's not something you want to beat around the bush about and uh, that person walk away with a, a misunderstanding of what you're actually trying to say. You want your point to be, very clear. Yeah, I appreciate you pointing that out. Uh, it seems this idea of saving others by snatching them out of the fire is sandwiched by the idea of mercy, uh, because at the end of verse 23, it says to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And so perhaps here's where we get the idea that we are to uh, love the sinner, but hate the sin. To some, we're going to uh, show mercy with fear, uh, but we're not endorsing uh, what they do we hate uh, the garments that are stained by the flesh. So really practical point when it comes to evangelism is meeting people where they are, addressing them where they are. Uh, So often we meet or address people where we want them to be or where we ourselves are, but we need to take into consideration where they are in their faith journey, in their relationships with God, or even straying from their relationship with God 
and craft our response from there. Right. And I think that that last part, to others show mercy with fear, having even the garment stained by the flesh, I think also possibly that's that's talking about, you know, as we're as we're going near to the to that fire to snatch people out, we've got to do so with some healthy fear of our ourselves, recognizing that as we're going to the fire to snatch people out, don't get burned yourself. You know, don't don't be influenced by the people that you're trying to influence. Uh, don't don't get so. Uh, wrapped in the fire as you're trying to reach out to people that you you don't realize that you yourself are being sucked into that fire. And so this this as we're on this mission of mercy, on this mission of trying to help people, we also have to have this this healthy this fear and awareness, knowing that um, you know we could be we could be stained by the flesh as well. What do you think about that understanding of it? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that's a biblical idea. When you look at you know, Galatians uh, chapter 6, uh, when you have a brother who has strayed into sin, you try to correct them with a spirit of gentleness, but you got to watch out for yourself uh, so that you won't be tempted, so that you won't fall away. So, yeah, I think we, uh, it, when I'm standing up on a chair and uh, somebody's standing on the ground, it's a whole lot easier for them to pull me down than for me to pull them up. Now, not impossible. Uh, but one's a whole lot easier than the other. So we need to keep an eye on ourselves, certainly when reaching out to other people. And I think there have been individuals who, in trying to reach out to others, uh, have ended up falling themselves. So I think, you know, we might do well to hear what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I think there's a a, a good dose of humility uh, there and uh, an intentional watching of ourselves, our aims, and our desires. Yeah, really good points. Really good uh, connections to other passages there as well. So how does this book end? Well, verses 24 and 25, I, I think it's pretty phenomenal to note that this book ends uh, with trust in God, trust in His power, trust in His guarding, and ultimately giving Him praise forever and ever from going as far back as we can to as far as we can go when it comes to time. We're going to give the Lord glory, majesty, dominion, and authority through Jesus Christ. Uh, but this idea in verse 24 specifically, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Are there things that we need to do to keep ourselves in the love of God? Certainly. We talked about that just a few moments ago, how uh, we're to uh, look out for others, verses 22 and 23. Wait for the mercy of the Lord. Build ourselves up in the most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Uh, there are things that we need to do and responsibilities that we have. But don't you think, emphasized here in verse 24, is that ultimately we have to trust in the Lord. That if, if we're doing what we can, God is going to keep us from stumbling. God one day is going to present us blameless uh, before the presence of his glory with great joy. And thinking about how amazing that's going to be, that right now God is guarding me. God is helping me to continue to live a faithful life so that one day he can present me blameless before himself. Uh, so it's really all about what God is doing in me and me placing my trust in him. Uh, so if, if we really want to stand up to false teaching, I think we place our trust in the Lord. 
that's a such a, a powerful point because all this talk about fire and false teachers and judgment and destruction is is scary. And if I'm just doing that, if I'm facing that on my own, um, I, I don't really stand a shot. I, I don't stand any chance, but God is able. He is able to keep me. And I, I like how you connected it to keep yourselves in, in the love of God. And as we think about that, everything that he says to keep yourselves in the love of God, that's really it's what, what we're doing when we pray in the Holy Spirit, when we build ourselves up in the faith, we are entrusting ourselves into the Father's hands. We're entrusting ourselves into the one who has the power to keep us. We have a part to play. We have action to take. But really, it's God who keeps us. It's him who has the power. It's him who has the glory. And he has this great purpose and plan for us that we're going to be presented blameless before his presence with great joy. And he's the only savior. He's the only God through Jesus Christ. He's got all authority. He's got all dominion. He's for all time now and forever. That's such a powerful way for Jude to conclude this book is by shifting our eyes to God himself. Um, It's important to be aware of false teachers. It's important to be aware of those who are, doubting or those who in the fire we've got it we've got to keep our eyes on all of that but in the midst of that what's most important to keep our eyes on is who god is and what his purpose is for us and his great power and presence uh that is promised to us through jesus christ i think so often we take all these responsibilities and we put them on our shoulders without thinking about how God is involved in our daily lives. I mean, I think I could do a better job at, at recognizing that, recognizing that God is the one who is keeping me. God is going to one day present me blameless before his presence with great joy. That's going to be a joyous occasion uh, just to recognize that, that God is working. God is involved. God is active in our lives on a daily basis. So how do we respond to that? We give him glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Uh, so what a what a beautiful ending to a short but great book. I mean, there's so much to unpack here. Um, what else, uh, Andy, would you say about this study, about those last couple verses uh, before we close and maybe offer a challenge? Yeah, uh, I think just final thoughts uh, for me, just just tying tying all this together. I think as we think about Jude and we read Jude, it's a very sobering book. It's very serious in its terminology and it's, uh, and what it's saying about the danger of falling, the danger of false teachers, the danger of living an ungodly life. And that, you know, that is something that we're, we're sometimes averse to in our culture is using such strong language, calling out sin. But I think what we see in Jude is that this is a loving response. And all of this is designed, as we see at the very end in the last couple of verses here, this is designed for our joy. You know, this is, you know, this stark language that's used, it's not used to to beat down this is used to build up this is used to to point us to the path of joy which is only found in his great glory and his 
great presence. And so um, part of part of being loved by God and experiencing his joy is not just experiencing forgiveness from the guilt of sin, but it's experiencing deliverance from the enslaving power of sin and the implications that that has on our lives. And so Jude, and I think God obviously is not content with us to um, just be forgiven and then continuing living our lives in the same way. He wants us to live in the love of God, shaped by the love of God, transformed by the love of God. And that affects me from the inside out. That affects me morally. That affects you know, what my desires are, what my passions are. And all of that is leading me to the presence of God so that I will be a person blameless fit through Jesus Christ and his righteousness uh, on that, on that great day. And so um, I think there's so many challenges that, that could be connected to that, that are simple from, from what Jude is telling us here. I think one thing, to do would be to um, we've done we've done similar challenges before, but I think one thing to do would be to write down um, some some things about who God is, His power in our lives. I think that would be a good way to center our minds on Him who is able to keep keep us from stumbling. I think another thing to, that would be important for us to do, or could be a challenge from this passage is to think about the people that we know in our lives or in our churches that are in danger, who are in doubting, maybe who are close to walking into that fire. And let us pray about, in the Holy Spirit, ways that we can build those people up, snatch those people out of the fire. Maybe pick one person this week that we can encourage um, to be built up in the love of God and contend for the faith in the life of that person so that they can grow closer to, to God as well. Yeah, I, I love that. I think those two challenges would be really beneficial, uh, not only for us, but also for those who we know. Uh, the only other thing that, that I thought about, and this is something that you were uh, touching on, is this idea of building ourselves up in the most holy faith and keeping ourselves in the love of God. You know, in, in what ways do I need personal growth. It's not just about me. What about the congregation that I'm a part of? How can we build ourselves up in the most holy faith uh, so that we can reach out to others, so that we can make a difference in the community that we're planted? And so while while we're in the process of writing stuff down, let's let's think about God. Let's think about how he's involved in our lives. Let's think about some people we can reach out to, but maybe let's also think about ourselves. What are some areas where I need to grow? What are some sins that I've been struggling with, that I need to kick to the curb? What are some temptations that I need to keep my eyes on? Uh, how can I keep myself rooted and grounded in the love that God has for me? And what's getting in the way of that right now? So I think this book demands reflection. And and I think it demands for us to spend some time, uh, like, like Jude says, like you just mentioned, Andy, praying in the Holy Spirit. Uh, so I think if we can do that, we'll certainly all be benefited. Yeah, I really appreciate you adding that. That's that's very personally convicting for me, and that's that's something that I want to I want to take up this challenge uh, for sure and uh, reflect on on this because I think it's so significant as as we 
grow because we face so many challenges, so many false ideas about God and about the world. And we need to reflect on um, how we can grow personally, how we can help others grow and how we can focus more on God. Well, I appreciate this study, Andy, even though the first part was separated from the second part by three months. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad we're able to, to get back together and record another episode. If, well, if there's well, we not just, a soul that listens to this, I've been benefited today. So I'm right. thankful for that. Well, you know, you just said that Jude demands reflection. We just needed about three months to reflect on that first half. So we could be ready for the second half. So this was an ep- yeah episode three months in the making. I mean, this is, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's just right. a lot. Did, that's why we've we been had going a, for you know about an hour and fifteen minutes. That's right. We're trying to make up for lost time here. So um, I really enjoyed being uh, back at it. Like you said, Tyler. Um, hopefully, other people will benefit from this. But if if not, I know I've really personally been encouraged by it by by your thoughts by just the text and the power of it and so i'm glad we've we're able to spend this time uh talking about uh the book of jude absolutely yeah appreciate you appreciate your insights and looking forward to recording another episode sometime soon appreciate all our listeners you for listening to the streams of water bible study podcast if you have a question comment or idea for a future episode connect with us on our private facebook group called streams of water bible study podcast or send us an email at streams of water 13 at gmail.com at streams of water 13 at gmail.com thanks for listening Thank you.